The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Expo Chicago and the art scene in the Windy City, how Northern Ireland's museums are marking the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, and an extravagant Sarah Bernhardt portrait. Ben Sutton and Carly Porterfield, two members of the art newspaper's US team, join me to discuss this week's Expo Chicago Art Fair, where it fits in with the US fair ecosystem and the market for contemporary art in the Illinois capital. As the US President Joe Biden visits Northern Ireland to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement, I talk to Hannah Crowdy, head of curatorial at National Museums Northern Ireland, a group of four museums, about marking the anniversary representing Northern Ireland's recent history and looking to the future. And this episode's work of the week is Georges Clarin's 1876 portrait of the celebrated French actor Sarah Bernhardt, who died a hundred years ago. It's part of a huge new exhibition about Bernhardt opening this week at the Petit Palais in Paris, and the museum's director, Annick Lemoine, tells me about the painting. Don't forget you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, the Expo Chicago Art Fair has just opened the doors to its 10th edition with more than 170 exhibitors from 36 countries occupying the booths in the Navy Pier venue. So how does Expo compare with other US art fairs? And does Chicago have a distinctive gallery scene and market? I spoke to Carly Porterfield, our associate editor for the art market in the Americas, and Ben Sutton, our editor in the Americas, about the fair and the city's art scene. Carly, you're actually in Chicago. Do you want to tell us where Expo Chicago fits in with the fair ecosystem in the US? Sure. It's definitely one of the larger regional fairs in the U.S. And this year, it's in the 10th year of its iteration under its current name, Expo Chicago. But it's actually existed, or a large art fair has existed in Chicago in some form since the 80s. And the previous iteration of the fair was called Art Chicago, which was actually much larger than Expo Chicago is now. But um, yeah, it's definitely one of the biggest regional art fairs in the U.S. And it definitely has sort of an outsized influence on the city, I would say, considering Chicago is one of the main hubs for art in the Midwest. Chicago is also the third largest city in the U.S. It's got, I think, 2.7 million people at our last census. So it's definitely a big deal in the art world in the U.S. Ben, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I would just concur that the U.S. art scene is so dominated by its sort of coastal metropolises of New York and Los Angeles, but between the really fantastic institutional landscape in Chicago, you've got the Art Institute of Chicago, the MCA, and like every major university that's in Chicago has a fantastic art museum. Um, There's just a a great number of institutions and collectors and and galleries, which we'll get into, but um, so it really is a pretty rich city. And I think Expo Chicago has really kind of grown into a real regional powerhouse. If we're sort of like trying to stack everybody up against each other, I would say that like along with the Dallas Art Fair, which is next week, it really is kind of the big art fair outside of New York and Los Angeles. And does it attempt in any way to compete with them, if you like, the coastal fairs, Ben? Would you say that there is a sort of element of we want to be at the top table, we want to be 
among those other fairs or does it sort of emphasize its uniqueness to a certain extent? I would say it does. I mean, Carly, you'll be you'll be there tomorrow, so you'll have an even better sense then. But my sense is that it, it does have a, a different tenor than a Freeze LA or a Freeze New York or the Army Show even. It does definitely have a kind of a stronger presence of American galleries, but also galleries that are outside of those main hubs. So you get a lot of galleries from the Midwest, galleries from Texas, galleries from just parts of the art world that are not kind of the ones that are showing it are Basel and Switzerland every summer. Like I would wager that they do not see themselves as a sort of direct competitor to Art Basel 90 Beach. I think it's it's a different flavor of fair. And I think it sort of is primarily serving this kind of Midwestern community. And and those are people who will travel to New York, will travel to Los Angeles, will travel to Miami and probably to London and, and Basel as well. But, you know, meeting them where they live, I think it is really sort of what the what the fair is about. Carly, is there any significance to the fact that it's called Expo Chicago and this term exposition that they're very keen to promote? Does that have any particular significance in terms of what people see at the fair? So it does. Expo Chicago does do a good job of, I think, kind of bringing art and all of the things happening to the local community in Chicago. I mean, there's stuff going all over the city this week, but actually the term exposition has a really unique history in Chicago. One of the reasons that Chicago does have such great influence in like American and worldwide culture, it's really well known is because there were two large expositions held in Chicago that kind of are credited with just like bringing the city out into the forefront of just kind of consciousness, especially when it comes to things like art, design, technology. And a fun fact that I learned during this trip, during a tour, is that there are four stars on the Chicago flag. And one of the stars actually stands for two of the big expositions that, you know, the city obviously holds very near and dear to its heart. So yeah, I think there is a lot of maybe even just emotional ties to the World Expo that they're trying to kind of echo with this event. Carly, you've looked into the Chicago gallery scene. What would you say makes it particularly unique? I do think that it's a little bit more of a tight-knit gallery scene than in other cities. I mean, even just being here for a few days, a lot of the galleries are holding joint events. um, So there seems to be a lot of just working together in that sense. And I do think that both the galleries and the collectors are more willing to take risks when it comes to kind of investing in different art. One thing a lot of dealers here have told me is that while, like Ben mentioned, that dealers in Chicago are willing to, you know, travel for art, they're also really keen on investing in local artists and maybe different kinds of art than maybe people are wanting to pick up in L.A. or New York necessarily. Um, There's a lot of clay. There's a lot of influence on outsider art in Chicago. Chicago is known for that. And so I think it does kind of create a really interesting gallery infrastructure and ecosystem. And there are major influential artists as well, aren't there, Ben, in terms of the kind of linchpins for wider artistic happenings, if you like. So Nick Cave is one that I mentioned, but also Theaster Gates has become a really sort of, sort of totemic figure for the city. Yeah, and absolutely. Theaster Gates in particular, well, actually both Nick Cave and Theaster Gates are sort of expanding on sort of like the definition of what we think of as an artist. And Nick Cave is creating a kind of community space, Nexus Studio. Theaster Gates obviously is sort of transforming an entire part of South Chicago. There's just like space and a willingness to kind of support artists who are doing really kind of ambitious and not necessarily very commercial things. I think that's kind of part of what Carly was saying about the gallery scene is that there is a real sort of commitment and sense of support for things that are not beautiful paintings to hang above your couch. There is like a a real investment in in supporting artists' projects that may be more sprawling or more long-term or open-ended. Do you want to give us a sense of the kind of different communities within Chicago and the art scene? Because I hear a lot about West Town and the West Loop. Are there distinctive characteristics that define the different areas? 
Yeah, I mean, I think from sort of preparing for this year's edition of the fair, we had some great reporting in our April issue by a couple of our contributors who are former Chicagoans, Claire Vroon and our former editor, Maggie Kerrigan. There's a kind of sense of, not a generational divide exactly, but there are these kind of like two large enclaves of galleries. Like you mentioned, there's sort of West Town, which is the slightly younger gallery scene. That's where galleries like Patron are based. And there's sort of like the kind of emerging galleries showing emerging artists. And then in, in the West Loop, which is the area just, as the name suggests, just across the river west of the Chicago downtown loop, is where you have kind of the more sort of blue chip galleries in the scene. So your Monique Malosha's and Rona Hoffman's and Kathy Gupta's and such. It's not even like tears necessarily, but there is a kind of a sense of, of a kind of a scene that is big enough that there is a kind of intergenerational dynamic. And Carly, tell us about collectors in the city, because I know there is a sort of very distinctive group within the city itself. Are they the sort of driving force in terms of who's coming to Expo over the next few days? Or are you likely to see a really broad international collector base there? I think that Chicago Expo does have a really good draw of bringing people from outside the city. But I do think there are a core group of very influential collectors that kind of set the scene for um, not just Expo, but for the whole art scene in Chicago as a whole. And it is tied to, like we've mentioned again, there is just such a deep infrastructure of institutional support that kind of helps that, that all kind of like plays off of each other. But yes, there are very influential, respected collectors that would not just be recognizable in Chicago, but like we've mentioned before, they travel to Basel, they go to Freeze. And so you would kind of see their faces anywhere. But I think that because Chicago is their home, they do kind of hold a special respect for Expo when it's in town. Uh, Right. So these are the sort of collectors who would also be on the boards of museums and so on. So their influence is not just in supporting younger artists through purchasing their works, for instance, but it's actually being on the boards and influencing the museums and so on. Right. There's a lot of crossover um, in Chicago. And in terms of the wider offer of, of fairs in Chicago, Ben, is it all about Expo Chicago or is there a, a satellite scene as well? This, so there was very briefly, maybe five or six years ago, NADA, the new art dealers alliance, had started a fair here, but that no longer exists. But the sort of ultimate satellite fair in Chicago is Barely Fair, which is a absolutely delightful miniature art fair, which is to say that it features normal size, regular art galleries showing small works in kind of a space that's something between a shoebox and a kind of desktop. And so that has been around, I forget for how many years now, it's it's at least three or four years, and has made itself a kind of a fixture of Expo Week. That is the kind of main satellite fair for Expo, to my knowledge, the only one, but uh, definitely is punching above its weight and has become (laughs) really, yeah, a fixture of the week. And Carly, I mean, is it very much like some of the other fairs in the sense that everyone pulls out all the stops when the fair's in town, as in the museums are all doing lots of programming, the non-profits and so on? If you like, does Chicago come alive with art more generally once Expo's on? Absolutely. I mean, even galleries that aren't taking part in Expo this year, as in they're not having a stand at the fair, it's still throwing tons of events. Like I mentioned, um, it is a really close-knit community, so everybody's throwing events. Even like the institutions are working with galleries, and it's been great to see everyone really kind of comes together. And um, even just walking down the street, even when you're not in the area that Expo is necessarily being held in, there's signs, people are talking about it. Yeah, definitely the city's coming alive with the event. 
And Ben, you mentioned that article by Margaret Carrigan in our Expo Chicago special earlier on. It's really interesting in terms of the way that the galleries are expanding beyond Chicago in the sense that there isn't a sort of obvious linear progress to the coastal scenes that we were talking about earlier on. There are galleries opening branches in Lisbon, in Portugal or in Mexico City. So again, does that speak to a kind of different mentality in that gallery scene? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we should say there is one gallery, Richard Gray Gallery, which has had spaces in both Chicago and New York for, for many decades. But beyond that, there has been this very interesting trend of, of Chicago galleries expanding, but choosing to do so not to New York and Los Angeles, but yeah, as you said, to Mexico City, where Marion Ibrahim has opened a space, and I believe it's Document is looking to open a space in Mexico. Or maybe it's Patron that's opening in Mexico. In any case, there are enough <laughs> that I got them mixed up, uh, which says something. <laughs> I think it sort of speaks to the fact that Chicago's not that far. You know, for if you're a U.S. collector, you know, you're going to encounter those Chicago galleries either when you visit Chicago because it is an important city to visit for its museums or you're going to encounter them at a fair in New York or in, or in L.A. or in Miami. You'll find that audience if you're a Chicago dealer, the, the kind of like domestic, you know, big name American collectors will find you. I think for the Chicago galleries that are expanding overseas, it's partly about, you know, reaching a kind of a totally different market. And I think places like Paris and Mexico City and and Lisbon really, in addition to having, you know, fantastic artistic communities of their own, also just offer an opportunity to expand your client base. Carly and Ben, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. You can read our reports on the fair as they come in at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. The special Expo Chicago supplement that we mentioned is in the April issue of the Art Newspaper or online. Coming up, Northern Ireland's museums and Sarah Bernhardt. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. The British Museum has lent a celebrated oceanic sculpture to Tahiti's main museum for three years. Known as A, the sculpture represents a deified ancestor of the people of Rurutu, a small island south of Tahiti. Tefare Iamanaha, the Museum of Tahiti and the Islands, was reopened in March after a major expansion. A is a 1.2 metre tall sandalwood sculpture that was much admired by modernist artists, including Picasso and Henry Moore. It dates from the 16th or 17th century, making it among the earliest surviving Polynesian sculptures. The work first came into the possession of British missionaries in Polynesia in 1821, but two centuries on, it's virtually impossible to determine the precise circumstances of its relinquishment or initial ownership, but it was apparently voluntarily removed from Rurutu by a group of islanders, rather than looted by Europeans. It entered the British Museum in 1911. The booming secondary market for sneakers jumped to new heights on Tuesday after a pair worn by the basketball star Michael Jordan sold in an online sale at Sotheby's for $2.2 million with fees. The Air Jordan 13s were worn in the second game of the 1998 finals with the Chicago Bulls, Jordan's last year with the team. While they fell short of their high estimate of $4 million, they still achieved the world record price for sneakers at auction. A jersey worn by Jordan during the same match in 1998 made $10.1 million at Sotheby's last September, the highest publicly recorded price for sports memorabilia. 
And finally, the origins of the fake Jean-Michel Basquiat works, seized by the FBI last June in a raid on the Orlando Museum of Art in Florida, became clearer on Tuesday. Court papers filed in Los Angeles revealed that the works were created by the auctioneer Michael Barsman and an unnamed forger in 2012. Barsman has agreed to plead guilty to lying to FBI agents about the painting's origins. He also admitted that he fabricated a bogus provenance involving the late screenwriter Ted Mumford for fake Basquiat works created by an accomplice identified only by the initials JF. The works, created in as little as five minutes, were shown in an exhibition at the Orlando Museum of Art called Heroes and Monsters, Jean-Michel Basquiat, the Tadeus Mumford Jr. Venice Collection. But after doubts were raised about the work's authenticity, the FBI raided the museum and seized 25 pieces. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Beginning on the 18th of April, Christie's New York presents The Sale of the Century, an important corporate collection of prints and multiples, one of the most significant collections of this medium ever auctioned. The series comprises over 400 works featuring rare portfolios like Barnett Newman's 18 Cantos, David Hockney's A Rake's Progress and Andy Warhol's Flowers. On the 20th of April, Christie's Prints and Multiples auction highlights more iconic works by Keith Haring, Richard Diebenkorn and Jasper Johns. Find out more at christies.com Welcome back. Now, on Wednesday, the US President Joe Biden visited Northern Ireland as part of the celebrations marking 25 years of the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement, which brought to an end 30 years of the Troubles, the violent conflict in Northern Ireland that cost the lives of more than 3,500 people. Hannah Crowdy is the Head of Curatorial at the National Museums of Northern Ireland, which encompasses four institutions, the Ulster Museum, the Ulster Folk Museum, the Ulster Transport Museum and the Ulster American Folk Park. I spoke to her about how the museums are marking the anniversary and to what extent that recent history and its aftermath are incorporated into their programming. Hannah, it's the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement. To what extent are the four National Museums of Northern Ireland marking the anniversary? So we're a group, National Museums NI, we're four museums across Northern Ireland and we're having a kind of focus activity on the Ulster Museum, which is a museum in Belfast. It's got a really interesting history connected to the Troubles as it opened as the Ulster Museum that we know today as a national museum back in 1972, which was the worst year of the Troubles. So it's something particularly in more recent years, we've been really interested to cover in the work that we do. We have a modern history gallery and a gallery called The Troubles and Beyond, where we try and set the conflict in context. We try and help people understand how we got to this point and we look at the road to peace and what that means for our society today. So that's something we we always have on and it's something I really wanted to make clear that marking anniversaries is important to us and something we, we look to do, but it's something that's core to our work. Absolutely. Can you say more about that? Because, for instance, the fact that you have a gallery called Beyond the Troubles, it seems to me is tremendously important. On the one hand, it's sort of marking those events. It's, it's acknowledging them and, in, and in fact, directly confronting them, if you like. But also the term Beyond the Troubles is absolutely about that period post the Good Friday Agreement and the present day. 
Yeah, it's actually called Beyond for, for two different reasons, and both of them are, are critical. Beyond is, is absolutely, as you say, that it goes beyond 1998. It, it brings right up to the, the present day. It looks at the legacy of the conflict and some of the kind of issues and challenges still within our society here, but also that the progress that has been made. It's also quite deliberately beyond in that we didn't want the gallery just to be about conflict and combatants. So instead, it is very much about what it was like to live here at the time and indeed still is like to live here. It takes in many different perspectives and voices of people who weren't directly involved in the conflict, although it did touch everyone's lives. So, for example, we've done a lot more in recent years to collect around LGBT plus experiences. We're trying to do more to collect the experiences of, of children growing up during the Troubles. So we want to take a really broad and, and holistic look at this period in our history. Tell me more about the different perspectives, because, of course, that's so crucial to this whole subject in the sense that there are still very strong views on both sides of this issue that, you know, there are multiple different viewpoints that you would have to encompass. I know that when you've talked about the whole ethos of the museum, you've talked about this term healing. And I'm interested in to what extent that is a sort of guiding principle in terms of the way you reach out to communities to get those perspectives featured in the museum in different ways. I think that's been a change in museums generally in, in recent years. It's certainly been a change for us that you would visit a museum or gallery previously and you would have that dominant curatorial voice and that is very limiting and, and also not acceptable anymore. We we are museums that are supposed to represent everyone and be, be inclusive to everyone. So those multiple perspectives, those diverse voices are really important to us and we think that what we can do as museums then is provide those kind of safe and shared spaces where people come across experiences and perspectives that might be very different to their own, but that can help their own understanding. It can help kind of respect for different experiences. We would talk in Northern Ireland a lot about good relations and we feel that supports good relations. We would hope it promotes empathy as well, that you can feel that for people who've gone through something very different to you. Part of the problem in Northern Ireland and I suppose often in societies that have been through conflict is that Communities can be very segregated. They grow up, they know about their own culture, their own identity, but they're not exposed to other experiences of that. Even in Northern Ireland, we in the main don't have an integrated education system. So people, unless they're visiting museums, might not learn about these different perceptions and experiences of their history. And a line we would use a lot in our work is that we have a shared history, but we do not have a shared memory. And that is part of the problem. Our history is absolutely intertwined but people don't remember it that way because they've had their own very particular experience of it. And so tell me how you can do that in a way through programming and collecting because of course the museums have a very broad remit in terms of the kind of objects that you can collect but do you pool the resources or do the individual museums have very distinctive collections which obviously serve very particular audiences and so on? Yeah, the museums have very distinctive collections. We as a National Museums group have a very extensive collection. It's about 1.4 million objects, not all of which are about our history. We have kind of natural sciences collections as well. But something we've been working on in recent years with partner museums across Northern Ireland and indeed the island of Ireland is this idea of the Troubles being a shared story and being a distributed story. And we hope that at the Ulster Museum we have an important role to play in that, but we can't give people the full experience. And so together with the Museum of Free Dairy and an organisation called Healing Through Remembering, we have been developing this conflict and legacy interpretive network which we kind of share good practice between ourselves. We are hoping to signpost to audiences what is out there, how they can experience and learn about the troubles in different ways, different places. 
there's a very broad and diverse membership. So say it was established by three of us very different organisations, but we all have a lot of respect for each other and we recognise we have different strengths and, and skills to bring to the table. And then there's organisations that are part of it, such as Action for Community Transformation, which is based on the Shankill Road. There's the Linen Hall Library, which is very well known in Belfast and has an extensive collection. National Museum of Ireland as well in Dublin. So it's through working together and it absolutely is through collecting activity as well, which you have said. Again, I think that's been a change in museums in particularly in the last 20 or so years. The Ulster Museum, if we're looking at art specifically, back in the the 60s, it started collecting contemporary art, but it primarily had an international focus to what it was doing. It wasn't looking so much at what was happening here, whereas now in our collection development policy, which governs everything we collect, we say things, for example, that we want to collect more artworks that represent socially conscious practice and artistic activity that addresses issues within our society. And we say specifically that we want to collect artworks that respond to the troubles and to its legacy as well. So all the time we're trying to increase that diversity and representativeness of our collections, just ensuring that they are relevant to people. I'm really conscious looking at the programming around the anniversary that one of the key factors seems to be to expand what people's perceptions from the outside of Northern Ireland are. So, for instance, you've got the piece by the Array Collective. And I think one of the points they made very powerfully with that piece is that people in Northern Ireland, of course, they think about the troubles and the legacy of the troubles and contemporary society, but they are also focused on incredibly important much broader issues today for instance reproductive rights and queer identities and so on and that seems to be a really crucial part of what you can do from now is to kind of broaden how outsiders perspectives of Northern Ireland might be structured or might be informed. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was interesting. The precursor to the Troubles Gallery that we have today at the Ulster Museum opened in 2009 and it was primarily sort of very large media images of kind of Bono on stage, for example, or the aftermath of an atrocity. And what was interesting about it is that the tourists that came were very satisfied with it because it was kind of connected with them. They're like, this is what I've seen in the papers. This is what I've seen on the news. This is what Northern Ireland is. But I think it was universally despised by everyone in Northern Ireland of, of whatever community background because they didn't feel it represented them and they just thought there's more to our lives than this conflict and there are issues that matter to us that we need to be looking at, we need to be raising awareness of. So yes, artworks like Array really bring that to the fore incredibly well and they are so connected with their communities as as artists and what is key to them is, is giving people a voice, people who often aren't heard, particularly at the political level. And another display which seems to me to be really important is Hannah Starkey's Principled and Revolutionary, which is these portraits of women who are related to the peace effort, if you like. And again, that really counters a perspective that outsiders might have, which is dominated by the male figures who are all over the news in 1998 as the negotiators of the peace. And it seems to me really important that you've brought women's voices into this whole story. It completely. I mean, one of the lines we use in talking about that expression is these stories are too often untold. 
And there's people like Monica McWilliam, who's in the Women's Coalition, uh, and Umbrella Hines, who had possibly more of a profile than most, although still not as much as men working in that sphere. And there's a lot of people kind of working more at the community level and, and as activists who are pretty much unknown and certainly not recognised for the work that they do. And I think that's been something really encouraging with the Good Friday Agreement commemorations this time around is that uh, we've got the Hannah Starkey Principled and Revolutionary Exhibition, which is a partnership with Belfast Photo Festival. There's also a brilliant initiative called Her Story, which is is telling those stories as well through their Peace Heroines exhibitions. Some of the universities are looking to recognise women and their contribution. The media is picking up on it more. It's still arguably too little too late, but it, it has been a real change and a, and a very positive change. One of the underlying themes of the reporting around the anniversary is about fragility. You know, you're based in Northern Ireland now. Of course, it relates to the, the fragility of the political institution, the ongoing future of the Assembly, but also to this idea that there is a fragility to the peace and that there is a generation who grew up after the Troubles and therefore have not had that lived experience of the Troubles. To what extent is that your perception that you have to confront that fragility head on as part of the museum's work? I'm not sure I'd necessarily use that term fragility, although, although many do, and, and, and in some ways there is an accuracy to that. I think what we would say is that peace is constantly a work in progress. It's something that we all have a stake in. It's something that we all have a, a contribution to make. And we would talk a lot in our work about this idea of the social peace process and the negotiations and agreements that happen at a political level. But there's also what happens in communities, in society and, and the part we can all play in that. And particularly when there are these issues in politics, which there are currently, we have no assembly in Northern Ireland at the moment. We would hope that as museums, we give people another way to engage with what's happening and to perhaps have their own voices heard. Absolutely. I mean, it seems to me almost like it acquires a sort of extra importance, really, the museum's work, because it's an authoritative voice, which is not a governmental voice, but it is nonetheless a voice which can, yes, involve communities, but ultimately act as a kind of institution for these voices to be heard. Yeah, I mean, generally it comes out that museums are trusted spaces. There's a lot of work we have to do as museums. We are still not as representative as we should be of, of everyone. We know that there are some people that still don't feel welcome in museums and there's more that we need to do to kind of really extend that welcome and, and, and show that we're for everyone. But I think what has been a really good change is, as I say, bringing in those different voices. We do have that trust. We do have that authority, but we don't own this story and it's also having that humility as well that's saying that we don't have all the answers. We're not always going to get it right. But if you help us, we will be able to do this better. So we would talk about this idea of co-curation and partnership working. And that is absolutely key to, to what we do. And, and is there a sense in which the decolonising process can relate to Northern Ireland's own history? Because, of course, this is a buzz term in museums, but I know it's very directly something that you are confronting as an organisation. And it seems to me part of that is things like looking at the Folk Museum at the Languages of Ulster, this project, which seems to me to be tremendously important, and so on. All of those things, looking deeper into Northern Ireland's history to kind of create a framework on which future projects can be based. Yeah, again, it's that giving space for different cultures and identities and for their stories to be told. Obviously, this idea of decolonisation is particularly complex on the island of Ireland. We're talking about somewhere that has been colonised and has also been part of the colonial efforts as well, and that creates its own challenges. We feel that 
decolonization work sits very well alongside anti-racism work. And so that's something that we're really focused on. And in Northern Ireland, it can often be this orange and green binary. And it's very easy for anyone to, to get stuck in that. And people get left behind and they don't get to have their voices heard. So absolutely, decolonization works in this way too, with this kind of work looking at the legacy of conflict. And that gives us our own very different perspective on decolonization. And just bringing it back to something I said earlier, that idea of mutual respect and understanding is as important in decolonization as it is on our work looking at the legacy of the past, specifically at the Troubles. Hannah, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Principled and Revolutionary Northern Ireland's Peace Women by Hannah Starkey is at the Ulster Museum until the 10th of September. A Ray Collective's The Druid's Ball is also at the Ulster Museum until the 3rd of September. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. On the 26th of March 1923, the French actor and general performing sensation Sarah Bernhardt died in Paris. To mark the centenary of her death, the Petit Palais in the French capital is presenting the exhibition Sarah Bernhardt and the Woman Created the Star. It features 400 items from paintings to film, photography and documents. Among them is the celebrated 1876 portrait of Bernhardt by Georges Clarin. And I spoke to Annick Lemoine, director of the Petit Palais and curator of the show about the picture. Annick, it's the centenary of Sarah Bernhardt's death. Can you tell us a bit more about her? Uh, yes, I think you can say that she's the first star in the history as well as an actor, but also as an artist. And this is what we show in the exhibition. She's an incredible, free, passionate, engaged woman, a woman that talks to us today still. Absolutely. You say she's the first star. One thing that's absolutely clear about her is that she had an impact on people from all fields of the cultural sphere, if you like. She made a massive impression on, of course, fellow actors and producers, but also writers and artists and so on. Yes, I think everybody that met Sarah Bernard were fascinated by her. And it's at the same time theatre, but also, as you say, and she always lived from the very beginning among artists, painters, sculptors, writers, and her uh, fame was all over the world. She traveled, as you know, and went from uh, America to Australia, coming to Ireland, England, Scotland, uh, Latin America, Egypt, everywhere. And everywhere she was a star and everywhere crowds came to hear her, even though she spoke and played always in French. So she also played Hamlet in French in London. Right, yeah, exactly. And she made such an impression on such a diverse group of people and across the ages as well, if you like. So, for instance, John Gielgud saw her in London <laughs> and it made a massive impression on him. But then also you have somebody like Jean Cocteau who described her as a sacred monster. What do you think he meant by that? Oh, uh, it's a difficult question. I think he meant sacred because she had become a, an icon, an icon of theatre, an icon of a woman, an icon of ambassador of French elegance and uh, of French art. Sacred because she was so famous you couldn't remove her and a monster because Sarah Bernard is maybe so eccentric, extravagant. She could do everything. She does everything with passion and nothing is forbidden for her. No 
borders. Everything is possible. And uh, maybe in that she, she can be a monster and she can play any role you ask her to play. And she can be a sculptor, painter, writer, an actor, a sacred monster. And you get a flavour of that from this painting by Georges Clérin, don't you? Because she is so extravagant. It's an image which immediately conveys a kind of flamboyance the minute you look at it. Exactly. I think this is why it was her favourite portrait. She kept this portrait all over her life in her different homes. And the story is really nice because it was given by her son, Maurice, her beloved son, to the Petit Palais, this famous painting. Painting, painted by Clérin in uh, 1876. She was uh, 30. It was at the beginning of her notoriety. She was becoming famous. And I think she really especially enjoyed this painting because you see Sarah Bernard as a star. And why is it a portrait of a star? For different reasons, because first of all, it's a, a huge format and a huge size. And then you see her from below. So she's looking down at you and she's shown in a extraordinary white déshabillé, silk déshabillé, in a very elaborate, nonchalance posture. You could see after her Greta Garbo, Marilyn Monroe, Madonna having exactly the same nonchalance pose. Her elbow is is on a cushion and the posture shows her very uh, elegant uh, silhouette. She was famous for being really thin, which was not at all the beauty looked at at the time. And on the contrary, she will play on it. And the artist, Clérin, who had been a lover who was a friend and one of her favorite portraits all her life, uh, he underlines this very thin silhouette. And it's also a portrait of a star because her outfit is really extremely elegant, a silk déshabillé with fur at the end and a collar made of white dentelle. White was her favorite color. And of course, she must have chosen it. I think it's a portrait of a star and very modern and also because it shows her interior. She is shown in her salon atelier. She worked on every detail of this hotel particulier that she had just bought and decorated, asking all her friend artists to work for her. And you can see in this portrait, she's sitting on a red sofa with her white outfit. And around it, you have carpets, you have very monumental plants and a mirror. It seems that this painting is just like a photography in her interior and this is very modern also because she's a star because of her elegance because of the interior and the luxury of the interior you can see in this portrait and also if you look at the details the way she's looking at us is striking you can see the magnetism of her eyes uh, she's looking right down to you with huge blue eyes 
Absolutely. And then there also there's this wonderful thing that there's this extremely elegant dog at her feet, of course. Yes. If you look closely, the dog too is meeting us as well. Exactly. He's, he's not looking directly at us, but from the side, the dog looks at us. Yes, he's taking a glimpse of, of us and judging how are we looking at this star and are, are we allowed to look at Sarah, at the divine Sarah. And then you have to look at details. And one of them, I love it very much, and it could be really uh, very modern today, is... You you can see that behind her silk déshabillé, you see just a glimpse of blue stockings and then her mule, her black shoes, and one is dropping. So it's going to drop. So she's really relaxed. That's the thing, she's isn't it? Really she's relaxed. welcomed you into this interior and she's incredibly relaxed, but also completely owning this space that we're looking exactly. at. Exactly. You're penetrating in her intimacy, but she has prepared everything in a false nonchalance, effectively. Yeah. Tell us about Georges Clairin, because obviously this painting was exhibited in the Salon of 1876. And when one thinks about 1876, it's such a tumultuous period for French art, because of course, that was the year of the Second Impressionist exhibition. So the French art world was in turmoil at this time. So how was it received? Oh, it is a huge success because it's Sarah Bernard. Thanks to Sarah Bernard, Clérin uh, becomes a, a very famous portraitist and a very famous artist because when you paint Sarah Bernard, you know you're going to have a success. And in this particular salon, there was more than four portraits of Sarah Bernard and it was called a Sarah Bernardist Salon because she was so present in this salon. He was famous as an Orientalist painter, but it is also his relationship with Sarah Bernard does participate to his notoriety. But he's faithful to her and she's faithful to him all their lives. And this painting was actually written about by Zola. Of course, he would review the salon and he was actually a bit disparaging about Sarah Bernhardt, wasn't he? And he sort of, there are compliments, but they're sort of barbed compliments to a certain degree. This always happens with stars, you know. <laughs> when you're a star, you have your admirers and also critics. And what we show also in the exhibition is as a star, she was the object of many caricatures. And it's also the time of uh, highlights of caricature at the time. So we show many uh, caricatures of Sarah Bernard, André Gilles, Capiello and, and others and they're full of irony. Some mock her feature, very thin feature. Others are very much more cruel about her Judaity or other aspects of Sarah Bernard's um, career. Yeah, and her Jewishness is actually really interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, she proclaims her Jewishness during the period of the Dreyfus Affair, which is this extraordinary moment in French culture. Would you explain a little bit about that? Yes, we really wanted in the exhibition to show all Sarah Bernard's faces and also the very engaged woman she was. She's passionate in everything and she's passionate when she defends a cause. And she took the party, as we say, of Dreyfus along with Zola at the time and she wrote to him an incredible passionate letter to thank him for his j'accuse who was uh, the defense he took for uh, André Dreyfus who was a great captain of the French army and was accused by one part of the French society also because of his uh, Judaity and you could see all the terrible awful very strong at the time uh, anti-Semitism in France. 
Right. And in terms of how that affected her career at the time, as you say, there was a huge anti-Semitism. Did that cause her any setbacks or was the support of Zola and other cultural figures a kind of means of keeping that at bay in some way? I'm not sure uh, she was such a star that it really affected her career, but it must have affected her. One of her very close friends, another actor called Marie Colombier, was one of the most passing from friend to uh, rival and enemy. And she wrote a terrible book on Sarah Bernard with very strong anti-Semitic critics. And it was the base of this book she wrote against Sarah Bernard as her rival and enemy. So yes, it was really present and it followed her. So tell us about her death then. She was 79 when she died. She was. How was she mourned by the public? Because she was, as you say, an enormous star. Oh, we show in the exhibition some extracts of the film that was done for her funerals. And it was incredible. Crowds were there mourning Sarah Bernard. They all came to her house. Maybe many of them that had never seen her in real life came to see her afterwards. And it goes on the whole day. There's more than five huge cars full of uh, flowers that followed the funeral that went from her house in the 8e arrondissement until the cemetery of the Père Lachaise where, where she was buried. And it was a huge event. We have this film, this documentary, and also police. Every 20 minutes, they had to give a report of what was happening. So this is why we have all the details of this famous day. It's extraordinary. And this painting is, in a way, the most famous representation of her during her lifetime, would you say? It is one of them. But uh, I think Nadar's photographies are also hugely famous. And Nadar was one of her first photographers. So he captured her uh, very early when she was really, really young, 15 years old, and all through her life. And I think these are one of the most uh, quite fantastic pictures of her and quite famous. Well, Annick, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about this extraordinary woman. Thank you. Sarah Bernhardt and the woman created the star is at the Petit Palais in Paris until the 27th of August. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Julia Mahalska and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Ben and Carly, Hannah and Annick. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.